From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This episode is the last of our miniseries on the Tudor dynasty. Mary I became Queen of England in July 1553. She restored the English church to Rome, she married Philip II of Spain, and she persecuted Protestant heretics. But five years after her accession, this daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon died. But what if she didn't? What if we were able to give her another 30 years? How might the history of this country be different? To indulge me in this piece of historical speculation, I'm joined for this special episode of Not Just the Tudors by a panel of leading Marian historians. Professor Anna Whitelock of City University is a leading expert on Tudor queenship. Professor Alexander Sampson of University College London has written extensively on Mary's marriage to Philip II of Spain. And Dr. Gonzalo Valesca Berenga of Bristol University is a leading historian of Philip's reign. This is, of course, a counterfactual. It's about what didn't happen. But does it also help us see the past in a different way? One of the things that's always said about Mary I is that she didn't have enough time. So we're going to give her some more. So here's my ground rules for this counterfactual thought experiment. Our historical genie has given us one wish. We can give Mary 30 more years. So instead of dying in November 1558, we're going to give her till November 1588, but we can't change anything else. By the time of Mary's accession in 1553, the country had been plunged for 20 years into religious turmoil, brought on by her father Henry VIII's infamous break with the Roman Catholic Church. For Mary, her path was clear. It was Protestantism that had dethroned her mother and alienated England from much of Europe. She would do everything in her power to restore Roman Catholicism in her kingdom. What could a church under Mary for 35 years have managed to achieve? Could she have rolled back what Edward did? Could she have refounded the monasteries? So what would have happened there as well? Who would like to tackle this one first? Anna? I mean, I think that a new generation would have grown up indoctrinated or educated uh, in the Catholic faith. And that would have made a huge difference. From the time of the Reformation, it was only, you know, 20 odd years when she came to the throne. So by her death, if it was 30 years more, I mean, there's that's sort of two generations then mm. since the change. And so I think there's every sense that Catholicism would have really embedded into England, English society. It's really interesting to imagine that Henry and Edward's reigns 
the schism during that period of time would have been the aberration. And actually, the English norm would have been very much one in which Catholicism was at the centre of things. Mary's religious ambitions went much further than domestic policies. They affected foreign relations as well. Mary's decisions were heavily influenced by the political landscape of Europe. This was an opportunity to re-establish England's reputation on the continent and open the door to powerful political alliances. Her attempts at reconciliation with Rome grabbed the attention of Catholic Spain. What do you think, Alexander? I think something else that's going on specifically during the 1550s is that different countries are creating, if you will, their own national brands of Catholicism to some extent. But I, th I think on that was quite interesting. And actually, this is something that I think scholarship and one of the ways it's moved on was, you know, studies of Mary's reign used to be so Anglo-centric. And then the work of Spanish scholars came in. And actually, one of the things that, you know, the sort of Spanish perspective has taught us is that Mary was considered in completely different ways from the perspective of Spain. Mary being looked to with a great degree of optimism and hope. And I think in many ways, by thinking a little bit about that, it will give us a sense perhaps of what she might have been if she'd lived for 30 more years. I mean, it's true, isn't it? Totally I, different perspective. I fully agree. I think if, we, if we're thinking about a possible legacy of that Mary that lived 30 more years, looking at the Spanish historiography from the moment she dies up until the 20th century would give us that sense of she is admired, she's seen as the mother of the nation, the woman who liberated England from the heretics. And I think that really transpires. And it's always Elizabeth who is cast as the unnatural ruler who has taken her country through a path of perdition. It's that unnatural element that is often ascribed to Mary's reign is very strongly ascribed to Elizabeth's instead. I love this idea. We're saying that a queen who has been remembered by the English, later the British, as being an extreme Catholic, always called Bloody Mary, and pointed to as somebody who is really very bigoted or zealous, is actually someone who might have been leading a more moderate, kind of middle way type of Catholicism, and actually might have been remembered as she is now by the Spanish as being the mother of the nation. I mean, Elizabeth was such a queen of spin in a way and did such a good job in making sure that Mary's you know, reputation, the popular narrative of Mary's reign was what it became. And of course, also, you know, John Fox's The Book of Martyrs, that had such an important role to play. But yes, I mean, if you look at how the Spanish describing Mary during her life and then afterwards, you have a completely different perspective. Mary made a strategic marriage to Philip, Prince of Spain. He was heir to a sizable portion of the Habsburg Empire in Europe and the New World. On paper, this match made perfect sense. It repaired the damage done by Henry VIII's dissolved marriage to Mary's Spanish mother, Catherine of Aragon, and enabled the Tudors to benefit enormously from a renewed affiliation with the mighty Habsburgs. Alexander? I think it would have been globally one of the most kind of significant dynastic unions of the 16th century and the kind of unification of England and Spain within a single political entity. Now, if that had lasted another 30 years, you've also got to think about the fact that during that time, Spain's presence in the new world is ramping up and increasing exponentially. Ultimately, who really was Protestant by 1553? And Christopher Hague said a long time ago, 
the vast majority of people living in England were still Catholic. Protestantism was still effectively an elite and intellectual pastime or activity. And in terms of what actually religion meant to people. So there are kind of two ways of thinking. It. Maybe one effect of 30 more years of Philip and Mary would have been that religion would have been a far less nationalistic kind of idea or far less kind of identified with the nation state. Do you agree, Gonzalo? No, I fully agree. And I think that's something that we often cite on when we talk about Spain in the early modern period, and that would have been incredibly important in the context of Philip and Mary's reign, is that Kingdom of Spain had what was called the Patronato Real, the royal patronage, which is the Pope gave the kings of Spain the right to administer church revenues in the New World, appointing bishops, both in the New World and in Spain. That would have been Henry VIII's dream. Mm. So Spain doesn't need to fight with the Pope about those matters. So yeah. the association with Spain would probably have had England go in that direction as well. I think there is an increasing amount of interest at this time in the new world in England and I think there could have been special permissions for English communities to establish themselves in the new world to do commerce under the patronage of the Spanish crown so I think that would have been an interesting angle to see how that developed in 30 years. Alexander? If you had those two countries aligned for that length of time with the industrial powerhouse of early modern Europe in the low countries being a Spanish territory, it would have ensured that that link between Spain and the Low Countries continued. That was one of the big strategic reasons for the marriage in the first place. But also, if you have that dominance in the Atlantic world, then I think you would have had an increasing kind of economic stranglehold on, on everything. Perhaps a longer marriage would have seen the sharing of spoils and heightened trust between the couple. Philip had gained half of the Habsburg Empire after Charles V's abdication in 1556. The couple could have potentially exercised significant power together in Europe. But in reality, Philip opted to spend the majority of his time in Spain away from his wife, returning only when he needed favours, like England's support in the Habsburg War against the French. Anna. And so with another 30 years, yes, England would have been drawn into that. Of course, Calais had been lost. There wasn't more territory to lose. But I'm not sure necessarily that there would have been this dual monarchy. But actually, arguably, by that point, we could have seen Mary as a much more subservient figure in that position. I mean, we know that Philip, when he came and then left, you know, more and more Spanish nobles were left here. He was more involved. And also, of course, that iconography, which showed the kind of floating crown and then the positioning of Mary and Philip with Philip, you know, around 1554, 1555, moving to the more dominant side, which historians have in part interpreted as the point of the sort of failed pregnancies and Philip taking a more dominant position. I take the point completely that I think, you know, England and Spain would have been an amazing uh, prospect. But I'm not necessarily sure that we would have this very equal partnership between Mary and Philip necessarily. Uh, I mean, Anna, I, I don't agree with you about the relationship between Philip and Mary. I think no, probably I, going, going I, I don't either, probably no. a little bit more <laughs> on my side on that one. I think we maybe sometimes get, you know, conflate in some ways our expectations of a relationship. I think people then were very pragmatic. They had a very strong sense of realpolitik and what this dynastic oh. union was all, all about. 
I think they had quite a good relationship. I think they got on very well. I think they were an excellent partnership. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I wasn't so, suggesting it was a love match, no. critiquing on that basis, but no. I was just suggesting, I think, that, you know, very much Philip looked to Mary into England as part of his strategic plans mm. and military aspirations and ambitions. I'm not sure that would have changed, and I'm not sure that, you know, an agenda would have been anything but subservient to mm. the Spanish one. I mean, I absolutely take your point about that. I mean, I think in some ways the only way that Philip and Charles were able to rule over this global empire was by having members of their family, people they were either married to or, or their children or kind of brothers, etc., ruling over as viceroys these different territories because they couldn't trust anybody else. In 1554, months after her marriage, Mary announced to the public that she was pregnant. Her belly swelled, she went into confinement. But time passed and there was no birth. Tragically, it was a phantom pregnancy in which the body displays all the symptoms of gestation except the child. It seems likely she then experienced another one three years later. This was deeply humiliating for Mary and destabilizing. She had no direct heir and there were other potential female rivals. If Mary's reign had continued significantly longer, she would have had to deal with her younger half-sister, Elizabeth. Would Mary have allowed Elizabeth to be a focus of energies, the, the successor for as long mm. as she doesn't have an heir? Or would she have done something about that? What are our possible scenarios here? Philip would have needed, I mean, he would, you know, given they don't have the heir that is so desired, if we assume that that is the case, then one of the first things that would have happened, and this is something people commented on the end of Mary's reign, was why didn't she marry Elizabeth off to a Habsburg you know, dynast? And if that had happened, then we have some interesting questions about would Elizabeth have retained her religion in the context of a marriage? Certainly if 30 years go past and she's had children and she's not actually a, a sovereign or a monarch herself, I can only assume that she would have essentially become Catholic or conformed at least. Gonzalo, do you agree? I do agree that Elizabeth would have been neutralized, either barred from the succession if she had continued to be a Protestant, or otherwise she would have embraced Catholicism, however sincere or insincerely. But I do think that Mary and Philip would have found a way of making sure that with 30 more years that that heir was a Catholic. It's very interesting that we raised the topic of Elizabeth's marriage because it's something that Mary was very strongly opinionated about. She didn't want that marriage to happen and she sides with her sister, which is quite a surprising turn. And Philip insists and insists. And when he goes to England in 1557, he repeats the request again. He sends his cousin Christina of Denmark and his sister Margaret of Parma to talk to Mary to try and get her to understand, but she still refuses. And I think it is the only conflict that Philip and Mary have that it's never solved. And Mary writes a letter, a very heartfelt letter, which is one of the only two that we have extant of her to Philip, in which she's saying that she's always refused to contemplate a marriage for Elizabeth ever since Elizabeth was born, which is a bit of a, she doesn't give any more details. Well, that was the point I was going to make, actually, because how credible ever would Elizabeth as a Catholic be? I mean, of course, you know, Elizabeth's mother, Anne Boleyn, the great whore, Elizabeth, the little whore. And so the sense of accepting and embracing 
and trusting in the idea of Elizabeth as Catholic, at what point would Mary have felt comfortable enough to name her as her heir and not seen her as the rising sun? And of course, Mary would have been getting older. Elizabeth would have presumably been as kind of precocious and charismatic and ambitious, perhaps, as she proved to be. And so, you know, what would Elizabeth's relationship with the prospect of Mary for another 30 years be? And would Elizabeth have happily settled for all of those years as playing a very obedient second fiddle? And the other question, of course, we must raise is, how would Mary have handled Mary, Queen of Scots? Well, I think it depends on what events happen, because if Mary continues to live and Elizabeth doesn't succeed to the throne, then Mary, Queen of Scots, evolution as a monarch could have been entirely different. If she had got in trouble, as she did in the 1560s, she would have had a Catholic neighbour who would have been able to maybe assist her in a different way than Elizabeth did. Mm -hmm. And also, she would not have been married to the French king anymore, and therefore she would have been more palatable in Philip's eyes as a potential successor to the throne. Mm -hmm. And who knows, maybe if Francis II died in 1560, it could all have been patched up with a marriage between Mary, Queen of Scots, and Prince Carlos, Philip's son. And then the question becomes, because, okay, she lives for another 35 years, but she's going to be getting older. So at what point does succession anxiety kick in? Mm -hmm. Because I've of course, by sounds of things, yeah. Well, of course, with Elizabeth's reign, there was a growing sense of you know what is going to happen next, what is going to come next with her refusal to name an heir. So, in Mary's case, the question becomes: Would she have named Elizabeth heir, or would she be still be holding on to the last minute, not in the belief that she was going to have her own heir, but because she didn't want to, you know, name the rising sun? Um, but then, what are people fearing about? the future because of course at the time when people were potentially questioning and opposing the marriage to Philip there was a sense of that England would get swallowed up within the sort of Spanish empire so what would be the anxieties about England's place towards the end of Mary's reign and yes England itself might be more confident and in a better place in terms of its Catholicism but what about its strategic position? When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. 
This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia, and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. It seems that with Mary on the throne, we're potentially going to have the English riding up to Scotland to take on the Protestants up there, dashing over to the Netherlands, getting a bit more involved and stuck in with colonialism at an earlier stage. It's a lot more activism, isn't it? There's a lot more warfare. What might the connection with Habsburg Spain over this extended period of time have meant for English culture? What do you think, Alexander? I believe that there was much greater integration during the four years of the Anglo-Spanish Union than people perhaps realise. There was a real attempt for Philip and his courtiers to integrate. You know, there were also intermarriages, for example, Jane Dormer, you know, married one of Philip's courtiers. So I think that sort of thing would have happened a lot more. And in a broader sense, there was a huge amount of interest in Spanish culture in early modern England, although there's not that much by way of translation or kind of direct influence initially. There's a great Anglo-Spanish vernacular language learning manual that they bring out to allow the people who come across with Philip to learn these things. And I can only see that as having progressed exponentially as time went on in an adaptation of adoption of Spanish mores and adoption of Spanish ideas. I mean, there's also that great story about the Duchess of Alba meeting Mary. And then because she's used to sitting on a cushion, she asked for a cushion. And then Mary tries to sit on the cushion and realises, well, I just does not have the flexibility, you know, at the <laughs> age of 38, to squat down on the floor. So they both end up on a pair of stools instead. But so I think absolutely there would have been growing integration. You know, England would have become a kind of hub, I think, of European culture. And just to come back to the point about the heir, if Elizabeth had been forced to marry a Habsburg, then she probably would have had children by 1588. So there are two possibilities in terms of the succession that I can see, either it's possible that Elizabeth's children might have been reinserted in the succession, or given the length of time that this connection had lasted, it's possible that Philip would have tried to ensure the succession of his own son to both Spain and England. I mean, I think that would have absolutely been the case that, you know, you can imagine pressure to marry Elizabeth off and in that way really not only secure the Catholic succession, but the sort of Spanish influence there. And it would have been a way of controlling the future. I mean, of course, Philip does offer his hand in marriage to Elizabeth on Mary's death. And of course, that was to preserve the alliance. So I can imagine that he would have tried to use Elizabeth to shore up that alliance going forward after Mary's death and would have arranged a marriage for her. He offers it very reluctantly, well, doesn't indeed. he? Because yeah, he yeah. does say to the Count of Feria, if it weren't if for, it must, yeah. for God and religion, I wouldn't do this for no earthly thing. But still, he <laughs> needs does. <must>. Yeah. <laughs> There were grumblings against the marriage in the English court. Powerful courtiers complained that England would now become a Spanish pawn. Their fears were seemingly justified when Calais, England's last stronghold in France and a key port for the English wool industry, fell to French forces. Mary had sent English troops to support a war that her husband had started abroad. The gamble was disastrous. Mary is supposed to have said, when I am dead and opened, 
you shall find Calais engraved upon my heart. I wonder what the impact of the loss of Calais would have been. Because obviously in historiography, people sort of say quite glibly, oh, you know, that was the final nail in the coffin of Mary's reputation, the loss of Calais, last English territory in France. But would that have provoked any kind of protest or rebellion or would it have just been seen as a small part of a much, of course, longer reign? Alexander. It was interesting about Calais that Philip II offers to get Calais back. And it's really the English Privy Council's dithering and kind of indecisiveness that there isn't an immediate counterstrike. But you can imagine if they'd remained married, that almost certainly the Spanish would have seen that, you know, because their idea of sovereignty, you know, then as now, if you are the sovereign ruler of a territory, you don't just take its loss lying down. You know, you fight tooth and nail to retain it. They would have wanted that. And they would have wanted it. It would have strategically been very, very useful. What do you think, Gonzalo? He is very invested. You read his letters to the Privy Council and he is invested. He is frustrated that he feels that they're not really responding to his intentions to take back Calais. His envoys are still fighting to make sure that Calais returns to English hands, even after Mary dies. Yeah, And that gets so often missed in the discussions of Mary's reign. And again, it's that sense when you don't have the Spanish dimension that you just, oh, you know, the English lost Calais and you just assume that the English would have wanted to get it back. And of course, but actually, you know, it's Philip and it's Spain that are looking to push to regain. Here's another one. This is from Left Field. Mary is our first crowned queen regnant. And do you think if she had had a much longer reign, our attitudes towards monarchy and gender would be different from those we've got? No, I don't Mm. personally think it would have made any difference at all because... For the simple reason that I think that those kind of patriarchal attitudes are very persistent, very deeply rooted. And if anything, in some ways, I think, you know, gender history, it's not a kind of linear story from the early modern period to now. And I think women who were queens, I think it's one of the internal contradictions of canasticism, is that you have authority and power that comes through bloodline to women and through the female line. That is something that is so central to the way that society is constituted in that period, that the fact that somebody's a woman, you know, they are an exception. They're kind of bracketed off almost from their gender in that sense. That would be my feeling that no, gender would not, it wouldn't have been a significant kind of improvement in some ways in terms of women's lot. What do you think, Anna? Yeah, I mean, I think, as Alexander said, I mean, in a sense, on Mary's accession, the prospect of two women was there. I think, you know, and ultimately Mary won out with legitimacy and so on. So I'm not sure necessarily that anything would have changed. I think perhaps assuming that Elizabeth follows her and assuming that Elizabeth was unmarried when she came to the throne, the attitude towards a female unmarried compared to married might have changed. Yeah. I've got two final thoughts I want to try on you. So the first is, can we do a greater flight of fantasy than we've already done? Can we extrapolate further? Can we think about what posterity would now have made of Mary? How our culture would have been changed? Would there have been no British empire? Because actually it would have been a Spanish empire. Would ideas of Britishness been completely different because they've been so rooted in being Protestant for so many years? Anything like this that just takes us a little bit further down the line. What do you think, Anna? I would say yes, yes, and yes, possibly to all of those. There's no doubt that if Mary had lived for another 30 years, I mean, her reign wouldn't have been seen as this kind of cul-de-sac in 
history that people kind of skim over and it's a dead end rain. There's nothing much to see here. And instead would have been acknowledged as much more of the European figure. I mean, if there was an Anglo-Spanish empire that had been forged during Mary and Philip's reign, then, you know, what happens next, dot, dot, dot? Is there a British empire in the same way? Well, probably not. Absolutely. I think everything would have been completely different. I think a lot of our kind of sense of English exceptionalism and distinctiveness comes precisely from this bifurcation, really, between British history and what is called European history. So in a lot of university courses and departments you have in history, basically, you know, those two strands. And I think that that would not have been the case had England and Britain formed part of a larger political body. So what our contribution within that would have been is kind of irrelevant. Everything would have been completely different, you know, with bullfighting in Wimbledon or, you know. <laughs> but I think I agree with both of you. And I think the question that could help us solve that problem a little bit more is what happens? Who is the successor? Mm. Because if there's no successor tied to the Spanish monarchy, that union, there might have been really close ties, but that union would have been dissolved after yeah. Mary dies. Just for this last few minutes, let's imagine that Mary just before she went into menopause, had a son by <laughs> Philip. How would that have changed things? I mean, I think in a way we've kind of managed without the prospect of an heir to actually explore what might have happened. I don't know what you think. I mean, I'm not sure that it's mm. necessarily as much a game changer. So it's quite interesting because I initially thought that would be the thing, but actually maybe it's the fact that the Anglo-Spanish marriage of Philip and Mary endures for another 30 years that he's in a sense somewhat more decisive. I mean, I think it comes, for me, it comes down to the kind of the marriage treaty, which kind of specified that the heir of Philip and Mary would have inherited England and the Low Countries. So you would have had, in a sense, a composite monarchy mm -hmm. on either side of the channel with a foothold in Northern Europe, a very wealthy part of Western Europe at that time. The question also is what would have happened to Philip's eldest son, Charles, because if he had in turn died in 1568, childless as he did in history, then the American, the Italian territories, all of that would have gone to this Anglo-Spanish mm. Habsburg-Tudor child. So mm. it would have been reunited again. So, yeah, we're opening the question up again. This <laughs> <laughs> is why we didn't have an heir in the first place. How weird has this been as historians to do? Has it been at all helpful? Has it actually clarified anything that did happen or made you rethink your perspective on Mary's reign? Yeah, I mean, I generally don't like counterfactuals, but actually it's been quite interesting to tease out what might have been. And I think, I mean, for me, actually, one of the really interesting things is thinking about Mary from a different perspective of time and also from the sort of Spanish-European perspective. And also I think it pushes us all out of those traditional historiographical cliches about, you know, that we know about Mary and really tests those and considers what could she have done with a bit more time. It's been very interesting to go through that. I think that one of the things that I found more striking was the fact that when we were talking about the Spanish historiography, and I did think that was a good point, that the Spanish historiography is in a way almost a, a reflection of what our views on Mary might have been had she lived longer, yeah. because there is a sense of regret in them at times, but it's almost a hopeful regret, as in this amazing woman existed who was the mother of the nation it's like would that have been the legacy of a long-lived mary and i think that's what i like take so it was counterfactual but at the same time 
we can look at it from an angle of actual historiography. When I was very young, I gave a paper in Spain, maybe, I don't know, 20, 20 something years ago. And the guy who was presiding over the table was a guy called Felipe Berta Jimenez, who's a great sort of philologist. He said, ah, you're the guy who's the expert in that saintly and wise queen, Mary, which is actually a quotation from a Lope de Vega poem. It's a direct quotation. It's been really weird. And I think it really brings home to me that it's this thing about kind of a butterfly beating its wings. If you kind of take one tiny thing out of the equation, then everything might have changed. Because we spent our lives looking and thinking about how those things that happened, you know, 400, 500 years ago are still having impacts today. We've talked about some of them in this conversation, but they're still very much present. They're part of people's everyday reality. And so if things have been different, then, you know, our world would be different. Everything would have been um, entirely different. And, and I think regardless of who Elizabeth turned out to be or what her place in the succession would have been in that scenario, I think there would have been changes impossible or at least incredibly hard to reverse after 30 yeah. years yeah. yeah absolutely yeah well thank you all very much for indulging in this despite hating counterfactuals <laughs> well i like the maps of fun thank you it's really thank you And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. And also to my researcher, Esther Arnott, my producer, Rob Weinberg, and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please do consider rating, ranking, bestowing multiple stars and commenting on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.